0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast.
1: So thank you very much for for that, for for coming tonight, uh, sorry, today here, and uh, for your time. Thank you very much for that, and a very warm welcome to you, and to Professor McKay here for the presentation. Uh, I would also like to introduce to you, or or probably a a, a special welcome to our our visitors from outside Griffith. We have uh, Frank Yorn here, who is the... Executive Director for um, the Australian Pacific Islands Business Council, the Australian Fiji Business Council, the Australian Papua New Guinea. Yeah, all three in one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and uh, we also have Son Donny here from the ABC. He has some interest, a lot of interest actually, in the region, and he's the specialist for ABC in the region. And uh, we have uh, Derek Brown here as well. He is from. The department of foreign affairs and trade and he's the state director here in Queensland uh, for the department so well, it seems that there is some interest from outside uh, Griffith and outside the university outside academia in what we are doing and we hope to um, to uh, you know uh, start um, developing some projects and uh, and be able to make some contribution in the future thank you very much now I give to
0: Okay. well, thank you. Uh, Thank you for asking me to come and speak with you about climate change. I might sit down as well, um, because I do have a few slides to show. I've entitled this Human Force Climate Change in the South Pacific. Just by way of background, I am a I'm an environmental scientist but I do a lot of work in the science policy sphere and we have a number of uh, collaborative arrangements growing in the South Pacific. One is with the Melanesian Spearhead Group which is an intergovernmental organisation between the Melanesian countries. Also with SPREP which is the SPC Regional Environmental Program and also the IUCN, International Union for uh, Conservation of Nature Regional Office in Oceania. What I want to do today is first of all explain what the climate change problem is uh, and there's two aspects of that. One is what we call mitigation and adaptation. Um, mit- mit- mitigation here and adaptation here have got specific meanings. The words uh, have been narrowed in their meaning. Uh, mitigate here means how do we reduce greenhouse gas emissions at you know, a safe level because we, we want to we want to cap the amount of emissions in the atmosphere to stabilise climate change. That's what's meant by the mitigation problem. And adaptation means how do we, how do we adapt to the now unavoidable impacts of climate change. So that's the, con- that's the meaning of those two terms in this particular context. Then I want to talk about some of the challenges for the South Pacific um, in, in responding to the climate change problem. And there's kind of three types. Uh, uh, climate change, or human force, rapid climate change, will make certain existing problems worse. It'll exacerbate certain problems. Uh, kind of new problems will emerge from the interactions between climate change and other things, and and there'll be new problems, entirely new classes of problems that we haven't had to deal with before. And, and one thing that I hope is evident by the end of my talk is, whilst we're kind of got used to thinking about climate change as, as an environmental problem, it's not an environmental problem it's actually a social problem and an economic problem and a technological problem and a finance problem as much as it is an environment problem, so it is a, a, a cross cutting issue and this is actually one of the reasons why it's so difficult to deal with and, and address it uh, Every it, it touches on every aspect of our economy and, and every aspect of our lives, and we're all implicated in it. And I'll come back to that point later on as well. And then uh, there are some issues about the way forward I want to discuss. One about, you know, what are the priorities in the region, some of the funding opportunities and the risks associated with that, the need to integrate and mainstream our climate change responses rather than seeing it as something additional or something that we tack on to what we're doing, i.e. mainstream it into sustainable development agendas, and and also this uh, this relationship between national responses and what the South Pacific might need to be doing collectively as a region. So there are some kind of geopolitical issues that arise. So what's the climate change problem? Uh, well, I've already said this. There's two dimensions to it. Uh, Mitigation, which is reducing greenhouse gases to a safe level and adapting to the impacts of unavoidable climate change. And when you think about it, we have to do both of them simultaneously. And this is one of the problems. If you're, whatever you are, a local government or a business or a village, you're being asked to do both. You're being asked to mitigate and adapt. So, again, it's a nexus between those two, which people are now struggling with around the world. And this graph is from the next IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. is the scientific body that reviews climate change science and every seven years they bring out a new report updating the world community on the state of the climate, world's climate and the science behind it. And this is a preview of the report that's coming out next year that was from a colleague, a German modeler called Meinhausen. And this is what the projections are in terms of just one of the metrics of climate change, which is the gross change in annual mean planetary temperature above pre-industrial levels. This is the metric that's commonly used. And the world community has agreed we should try and limit global warming to no more than two degrees above pre-industrial temperatures. And that's the red line there. So the bottom axis is time from 1900 to 2100, 2200, 2300. 2300 sounds a bit like science fiction but that's where we're heading Uh, and and this is the projected increase in temperature above pre-industrial temperatures with business as usual i.e. we fail to mitigate the world community just fails to mitigate and we keep pumping out fossil fuel emissions and land use emissions at the current rates that we're projected to i.e. this is the track we're on and you can see that we're due to cross this two-degree barrier by about 2040 and hit about five degrees by 2100. After 2100, the uncertainty, you know, the further you look into the future, the more, un, the more uncertain it is, but it could be anywhere up to 12 degrees by, by 2200. So the scientists think it's very important that people have, an under, have, a, have a grasp of just how much climate change we're heading towards because if you look at this graph down at the bottom over the next 10 years say between where we are now 2010 and 2020, there's not that much change, there is change but there's not that much, the further you look into the future the further the change is so one of the policy or one of the impediments to kind of dealing with climate change is governments don't see this necessarily and many people don't see this as a problem that requires urgent action now, it's a problem that can be put off, you know Till we've passed the red dotted line, for example. and but because of that kind of you know information, uh, people are uh, uh, you know recognizing that it's not just a climate, uh, an environmental issue. It's actually now recognized internationally as a security issue. The disruptions that climate change will cause, Ban Ki Moon says here, climate change not only exacerbates threats to peace and security, it is a threat to international peace and security. That's a quote from. Climate change has very real implications for international peace and security. That was Susan Rice when she was U.S. ambassador. Here's another quote. Most national security establishments consider global warming as among the big, biggest security challenges of the century. Who said that? You know, the permanent representative Germany to UN. And all of this was from a Security Council meeting in 2011. So the climate change issue has now you know, escaped the environmental sector And it's now even in the security sector. And as I mentioned, climate change impacts will be increasingly felt in coming decades and we know at a global scale what these will look like. There's going to be rising sea levels with increasing storm surges, king tides, coastal inundation and groundwater intrusion. We get them already, but climate change makes them worse, will make them more intense, will make them occur more often. The modelling that's been done around Tasmanian coastline shows that by 2070, what's a one-in-100 storm surge event will become annual. There will be, and this is a really important point, as the you know as the average weather changes, as it gets as the average statistics warm, the distribution of extreme events changes as well. As you change the mean of a distribution, extreme events become more likely. So there's predicted to be in the South Pacific certainly an increase in the intensity of tropical cyclones and, and also more frequent, more intense rainfall and more flooding. So for the, for the South Pacific, the, there's going to be a shift, for example, in the seasonality of rainfall, drier winter rainfall, but more intense rainfall when it falls. So total rainfall might go up, but you'll actually get more flooding and there'll be periods of the year when it's dry, for example. So global warming doesn't just mean it gets hotter, it means there are these changes in aspects of the weather that affects people's lives directly. And of course there'll be increasing land and sea temperatures, which I'll come back to. And of course as we pump more CO2 in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide dissolves in water. We all know that when we pop our can of Coca-Cola. That's why it's fizzy, because there's CO2 dissolved in the water. And and that changes the pH of the water, which changes all these biological processes in the water, uh, or many biological processes. This is called the ocean acidification problem. So even if putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, even if it did not change the climate and the weather, it would still be acidifying the ocean. And many people think that alone would be a problem of such seriousness that it would warrant things. Ice is going to melt on land. This isn't a problem for the South Pacific. It's a problem for places like northern India that get a lot of their fresh water from uh, ice melt. But what is going to happen in the Pacific are, as the atmosphere warms, heat's transferred to the ocean and the ocean currents start to shift. And that has all sorts of interesting implications which I'll come back to shortly when we're talking about tuna fish stocks. So the challenges for the South Pacific... Well, as we know, the South Pacific is an interesting region. It has a lot of ocean and a lot of water. For a start, we know that those impacts in the oceans are... The climate change-related impacts in the ocean to do with changing currents and changing acidity and how that affects ecosystems in the ocean are going to be particularly important. And we have a lot of coastline and a lot of people living on the coastline and infrastructure on the coastline. So we can already tell or know that changes to, that sea level rise impacts and associated changes in storm surges and salt water intrusion of uh, freshwater lenses and the like will become increasingly a problem, particularly in the South Pacific. And we've still got a large percentage of the population that are rural based, village based and living directly from what they could harvest from the land and oceans or what they can grow on, on the land and we also know we have a growing population. And I might skip these. I mean, I've kind of already said it, but there has been quite a lot of work done. I don't know why that black square is there. That black square should not be there. It was a little map showing you the weather systems for the South Pacific and how they're going to change, and it's gone black. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a
0: really good map. It actually shows the weather systems and the ocean currents. But anyway, it's, uh, I've got the reference down there. It was a very... I'm it. <laughs> yeah. But CSIRO, uh, AusAid has been funding CSIRO to do some very good climate science work, trying to get some better downscale projections of what's actually going to happen, you know, in, in, in the region, and that's the reference down there, and I think this PowerPoint is on the program's website. And again, you don't have to worry about the detail here. This is just copied from the CSIRO report, but they're starting to drill down to try and get some numbers about how things are going to change course well, the point I do want to make is, and I've already said this too, that it's one thing to talk about global averages. What's really important is what's going to happen in terms of local extremes not just means. What's going to happen in terms of a changing climate will change to lead to changes in extreme weather and climatic events. And generally speaking, the general rule, rule of thumb is an increase in the intensity and frequency of extreme events, floods, droughts, fires and cyclones. And more of the same. So if you currently have seasonal rainfall, you'll get more of it. Uh, there'll be more. There'll be an intensifying of the weather system. But, and this is my one and only climate change joke. You know, the problem with talking about means is no one lives in a place called average. Okay? So the question is, how will the climate change where you live and work? That's the that's the issue. And this is where the climate change science falls over a bit because. The climate change models are actually pretty wonderful when you think about them, but they're still operating at a scale. They're they're, a, they're actually very good globally, quite useful regionally, but at a country level, you know, a sub-country level, they're they're still inadequate. So we're still struggling with actually knowing what what will the sea level rise impacts be at Port Villa in Vanuatu, and another reason why. We need to understand things locally when it comes to climate change impacts. Is that the local effects of climate change are contingent? They're contingent on local circumstances, and this is the IPCC model of how we how we try and study climate change impacts. And I'll illustrate these shortly. But you know, we can project how the climate will change, and there are these two basic concepts of exposure and sensitivity. And I like to illustrate that with using the metaphor of two men sitting on a park bench. One is bald and one is pursuit. They are both exposed to the same sunlight, sun rays from the sun, but one, one is much more sensitive. Of course, he's got a bald head. So, so the potential impact of any climate change will, will, will vary because their sensitivity varies. But we also have to consider adaptive capacity. The, the man who's bald, he might be more sensitive... But he might be very smart and realizing it's a sunny day go inside. So he's had an adaptive response. He's left the park bench and he's gone inside. We also have to consider the adaptive capacity of the system or community we're looking at. Those two together enable us to make an assessment of what the vulnerability is of the of those community or of that system and and to identify what the risks are. So when we talk about adaptation, you know, it's really how do we respond to reduce vulnerability? Can we reduce? Can we do things differently, or do something different, or make some changes so that we make ourselves less exposed, or less sensitive, or less vulnerable? So that's the nature of the you know, adaptation game. But all of those things are—they're contingent, they're local. And adaptive capacity is something which is clearly, you know, very much. Determined by, by local circumstances, and they're just three images from around the South Pacific of uh, uh, you know of communities that have got you know different. There are, d- there are different levels of adaptive capacity, you know. Evident, you know, French New Caledonia has a lot of money. You know, it's a wealthy, you know, in the whole. It's a wealthy um, place, and uh, the city has a lot of good infrastructure. And the French government has a lot of you know technological uh, you know knowledge it can draw upon. But, uh, you know, a small village in, um, in Vanuatu is very poor and the people have few you know, uh, financial options or, or, or uh, assets they can draw upon. And the top is just showing, you know, people... Uh, that's a, that's a, a, a South Pacific activist group um, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a protest they were doing a few years back that was reported by the ABC. We're not drowning, we're fighting. So, you know, like there's social capital. Social capital uh, can give people adaptive capacity. So adaptive capacity is critical and and it can be increased, but it varies enormously depending on local circumstances. Adaptation is local, but again, we're also going to need to think about adaptation at a regional level in the South Pacific. There are going to be trans-border problems. There are also problems held in common between Melanesian and Polynesian and Micronesian countries. They've all got a lot of coastline. Uh, they have a high percentage of people dependent upon agriculture and fishing for protein. And also there's a, there's a, great, uh, a great shared need for capacity building. So I want to talk a bit about those three things. One issue which, and perhaps this is the issue that the South Pacific has become most known for when it comes to climate change, is that there's a number of small island nation states whose territories are only within a half a metre of current sea levels, So they're considered to be highly exposed and at risk and vulnerable to any kind of sea level rise. And of course those sea level rise impacts are not just from the islands disappearing beneath the ocean, but as you change the base level of the ocean, you get higher storm surges, you start to get salt intrusion of freshwater lenses, you get salt contamination of soil where people are trying to grow food crops and the like. So there, and a number of those small island nation states like Kiribati and others, you know, are in dialogue with nations around the Pacific, including Australia, have been for some time about you know, long-term strategies of dealing with the prospect that one day their territory may might become uninhabitable. But climatic disruptions, you know, are, are part of a a part of a broader set of factors that drive people to migrate or cause temporary or, or semi-permanent displacements, or, or, or motivate people, or force people to become you know, refugees. So climate change impacts, generally speaking, except in extreme cases like eventually a small island nation state disappearing, will interact with all these other factors, the economic factors, and the political factors that, that drive people to move. So this is a good example of where climate change, when we start to think about climate change, when we look down into a particular problem like migration, displacement and refugees, when we peer into that problem domain, we lose sight of the climate change factor because there are kind of more urgent, immediate, economic or political factors that are causing people to move. But we're going to get both internal displacement and trans-border migration from climate change if you like, you know, catalyzed or accelerated um, migration and of course if you, if if this movement is temporary, if it's cross border and it's temporary it produces huge logistic problems I and mean, this is disaster management post-disaster management of dealing with displaced communities, whether they're within a country or, or across national borders, there's big logistic challenges in just Providing people with basic needs and healthcare and the like. If it's permanent, it becomes a geopolitical issue. Right? And there's maybe eight hundred thousand uh, people living in the South Pacific who are, you know, who live who live within half a meter of the sea level. Uh, so there's the prospect that some people may be forced, to, or some communities may be forced to. I ideally move as a result of climate change or climate change related factors but are unable to so they're trapped and of course this is, this is true with political and economic um, issues as well and there's a general trend of people moving to the cities or the peri-urban areas the, uh, you know, to, become, to become displaced people trying to uh, earn a living in the kind of peri-urban environment and they're often suboptimal they're, they're often actually more vulnerable but less somewhere because they're vulnerable for climate change or, or, or political or economic reasons, and they end up in kind of a, a suburban environment where they're actually more vulnerable. And kind of long-term interaction is critical here. And so there's a very good report put out by the UK government called uh, Foresight Migration and Global Environmental Change, which analysed this issue, trying to put climate change in this broader, broader context of environmental change... Fisheries is an area, of course, that's critical economically and for sustainable livelihoods in the South Pacific. It's a really substantial part of uh, export earnings for South Pacific countries, and it's a major source of protein. And again, the uh, SREP... Uh, well, well, it was the Secretary for the Pacific Community and SREP um, commissioned a very good report of vulnerability of tropical fish for Pacific fisheries and agriculture to climate change. And, again, what this showed was that there are going to be changes in the distribution and abundance of tuna because ocean currents are going to change and there's going to be winners and losers. So some of the countries whose economic exclusion zones currently have tuna stocks won't have them and then some countries that won't have them will get them. So there are winners and losers. And that's kind of a good example with climate change. In the short term, there's winners and losers. Some people benefit, some people lose out badly. There's, for various reasons, partly to do with acidification and warming and, and related, but related interactions with pollution and overuse, there's a, people are predicting there's going to be a decline in coastal fisheries and coral reefs of about 20 to 50%. And that's important from a sustainable livelihoods and food security point of view. Of course, a lot of food consumption is from, from those ecosystems, whereas the ocean tuna fisheries are you know, export dollars rather than local protein. There's a possibility of increasing fresh uh, freshwater aquaculture. Of course, some of the larger islands, Melanesian islands, are predicted to actually get more rain, which might provide more resources to do that. But it's also pointed out there's going to have to be investment in coastal infrastructure to deal with the impacts of climate change in the coast, and that's going to add, actually add to the cost of production. All of this is actually, you know, at least in the coming decades, manageable. There are adaptation options that can reduce the risks and, and the costs, but again they need to be tailored to the particular circumstances of each country. But planning for change is vital in the region because fish is the single biggest source of animal protein in the in the Pacific diet. Uh, you know, in some countries it's 60-70% to 70% of animal protein. And the estimates are that another 150,000 tonne of fish are needed to provide good nutrition to the expanding population uh, by 2030. So we've got a Basically, fish production's got to double, right, in the next 20 years to so just to meet growing population, and we're talking about a decline in coastal fisheries and coral reefs by 20 to 50 percent. So there's there's a big food security issue here for the region, which exists already, but the climate change exacerbates it. It's not like it's going to happen because of climate change, but it's exacerbated because of climate. Another, another climate change impact which is common to the region, and I think it's particularly important for the Melanesian countries who have got a lot of elevation, is vector borne diseases. Vector borne diseases such as malaria and dengue and tick borne diseases and plagues are very susceptible to climate change in a number of reasons. Temperature determines the distribution of the vectors like dengue fever and malaria, and that map the left-hand map: the orange is just the current areas of, or countries at risk of dengue. And it's currently distributed only in areas in which the temperature remains greater than 10 degrees all year. So, in the Melanesian countries that have got a lot of elevation, like Papua New Guinea, the highlands of Papua New Guinea, you know, um, historically have experienced relatively few malaria outbreaks, and the local human populations have low um, immunity to to the, de- to the disease and fewer kind of cultural practices and knowledge of dealing with it. Of course, the dinghy's been in the lowlands. But with global warming, the mosquito line's rise. So this is a kind of major potential health issue. Well, it's happening now, actually. The mosquitoes are, are going up. But it's not just malaria. You know, there are many others. So we're going to see major changes in the distribution of vector-borne diseases because of climate change and the global warming aspect in particular. And also other things that you know you are only revealed when you understand the life history of the organisms. So when you have a warmer climate, insects can complete their life cycles quicker okay, and they can bite you more. This is apparently a big thing than being able to. There's more of them and they can bite you more often. So again, this is a shared problem. You know. there's, a, there's some regional issues here. So as I said, adaptation consists of those actions we take you know, to reduce the reverse effects, as well as to harness some beneficial opportunities. Of course, any change presents opportunity. Some countries will do very well out of shifting tuna stocks if they're ready for it. But there's one adaptation approach which I wanted to talk a little bit about, which I think is particularly relevant for the South Pacific, and it's called ecosystem-based adaptation. And I think it has a special role uh, in the South Pacific. And these are approaches that involve the services that biodiversity and ecosystems provide, as part of an overall adaptation strategy to help people adapt to the adverse effects of climate change. That's what these are known as ecosystem-based adap- approaches to adaptation. The underlying principle is that healthy ecosystems can play a vital role in maintaining and increasing resilience to climate change, and in reducing climate change risk and vulnerability. And this approach has now been formally recognised by the UNFCCC, that's the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and the other acronym, SSBSTA, is the Scientific Subcommittee for... Anyway, it's a technical advisory <laughs> substuff sub-stuff, uh, for a recent report. Well, we just talked about how people eat fish from coastal e- you know, marine ecosystems. That's an ecosystem service, right? The, the, the fish populations that that ecosystem supports is the ecosystem service that we're talking about. But to have those fish populations, you've got to have a healthy ecosystem. If you degrade the ecosystem or pollute it, it can't, it can't grow those fish populations. So, in, And that's true in every ecosystem. In every ecosystem, there's some benefit that humans gain That that's of value. So sustainably managing, conserving and, and, and re restoring ecosystems so that they can continue to provide those services allows people to adapt to climate change and the South Pacific this very much can be related to and build upon traditional knowledge so when you talk to people in a village they've grown, you know, traditionally they've grown up you know, all their, their cultural practices and their sustainable livelihoods are associated with an ecosystem type if they're, if they're a village that's grown up in a mangrove they know all about the mangrove you know, their traditions and their livelihoods are based upon the mangrove ecosystem so maintaining that mangrove ecosystem as a as a mangrove ecosystem makes a lot of sense. It's not something new for them. I mean they don't use the language of ecosystem based adaptation, but they do know about traditional culture. So if you talk to people about, about their traditional cultures, you know, that's a bridge to ecosystem based adaptation. So it generates a range of social, economic and cultural benefits. It also helps with mitigation because ecosystems, especially on land and mangroves and seagrasses, store carbon in the in the biomass and in the soil. So here's this mi- adaptation mitigation nexus. If we look after adaptation, it's a kind of climate change sustainability nexus. If we look after these natural ecosystems, they provide services for local people. They help them adapt to climate change, and they help they help mitigate. Um, to help mitigate greenhouse gases. And one of the important aspects that's that's come out of the research that's been done on an ecosystem-based approach is the absolute critical role of of community leadership. That this really has to be a bottom-up approach. Ecosystem-based adaptation can't be a top-down approach. It could be facilitated. Resources could be provided. But the planning and the implementation and the monitoring and evaluation has to be done locally. So local leadership... Uh, capacity building at that local level is the key. And I thought this was a good quote. This was from a a report that SPREP did from a local NGO called Live and Learn Environment Education. People from Melanesia heavily rely on their land for their livelihoods. They depend on their environment for food and income from cash crops for clean water fertile soil, forests for building materials, medicine and for hunting. Compared to other countries, most Melanesians have very small carbon footprints having contributed very little to global warming and climate change. Unfortunately, they will be among the most, those most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change due to their high dependency on their immediate environment and close proximity to the coast. So that's the basic kind of um, value proposition for ecosystem-based adaptation. I'll just skip here. So this was a nice study that was done by SPREP uh, this year where they looked at different adaptation options for a place in Fiji, Lamy, Lamy Town, and it was an economic analysis... They looked at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight adaptation options in the coastal zone for for reducing exposure and sensitivity to climate change impacts in the coastal zone. And those some of them were ecosystem-based. There's one; they're the ones tagged with a little green leaf. And then three of them were what I call you know, engineering solutions, right? Where we use technology to build stuff. So one was to replant mangroves, one was to replant stream buffers. There was monitoring enforcement, which is really a behavioural one, getting people to do the right thing. Reducing upland logging, i.e. if you overlog the catchments, you get sediment flow into the mangroves, which damages things. Reducing coral extraction. And then there were engineering solutions, building seawalls, reinforcing rivers, increasing drainage. And they're the numbers, they were the costs in thousands of Fijian dollars over 10 years or 20 years at a 3% discount rate. And you can see there's an order of magnitude difference in the cost. So, you know, the argument that this SPREP paper was presenting was that ecosystem-based ones, the ecosystem-based approaches are actually more cost-effective than engineering ones. They have pure, uh, fewer perverse outcomes Of course, the engineering ones tend to rem- remove ecosystems. And the ecosystem-based ones also have co-benefits for sustainable livelihoods, biodiversity, conservation and the like. So let me say something about where, what the region's looking at in the coming years with climate change. Well, let me tell you, there's no shortage of climate change adaptation activity in the region. There are the uh, nations, the uh, all the what are called partner develop organisations, AUSAID, USAID. German aid, all the major NGOs have formed a Pacific Islands framework for action on climate change. So there's an attempt to coordinate at a regional level. There are literally hundreds of on-the-ground community-based climate change projects underway in the South Pacific, literally. The SPC has, has fun- currently funding 700 climate change projects. They're both mitigation and adaptation. Uh, the mitigation ones tend to be about renewable energy. You know, replacing diesel diesel generators with solar systems or micro-hydro systems or something like that. The adaptation ones are, are very diverse. So, you know, we've been... Uh, but the kind of questions we've been talking to people about is well, what will be their legacy? Okay. Like, what will happen to all the data and information? Will it be you know, useful into the long term? And, and will these projects actually be addressing national and regional priorities... Who determines the priorities? Is it the funders, you know, or is it, the, is it the nations? Is it the regional entities? How can we make sure that knowledge gaps are filled, that the research is useful and, and that we avoid kind of wasteful duplication? I, I'm actually a big proponent of diversity in approaches to research and I don't mind duplication because that can be good. If you've got a diversity of, if you've got a diversity of approaches, that can be a good thing, but we don't want to have wasteful duplication. And again, will, the, will you know, these projects actually be, be servicing what the countries want? And will they be integrated into the strategic planning and governmental processes underway? Will they be kind of layered on or done separately? And there's no shortage of climate change funds. There's now a green climate under the uh, UN Framework Climate Change Treaty. There's now a green climate fund. Its, has, its goal is to raise $100 billion per year by 2020 for mitigation, adaptation in developing countries. The Asian Development Bank has estimated that to help developing countries transit to low economies and climate resilience, they want $1.5 trillion. And they're gearing up their climate change adaptation program. The Australian government, through AusAid, invested $150 million in 2008 and 2009. 178 million in 2012 and 13 and I saw in the budget there was another hundred million or so being invested the next the next year. US aid is in the area, German aid is there and, and China aid. So we're talking about actually over the next decades hundreds of millions of dollars going into the South Pacific through the framing of climate change, climate change aid. So you know so I've got kind of three issues or four issues there to conclude. Uh, you know, how how do these countries access these climate change adaptation funding? It's actually not easy. Uh, it's very hard, and whilst there's lots and lots of opportunities, the hoops are getting you know smaller and smaller and higher and higher, and the countries are actually finding it. You know, they're having to invest more and more to get to get the money out. That may or may not be a good thing, but uh, just because there's lots of money there doesn't actually mean the money will always get to you know where it's most needed. There's clearly a need for kind of harmonisation and prioritisation of regional climate change mitigation, adaptation projects and programmes, both in terms of national priorities, shared problems and trans-border issues. There's a huge problem, as there is with development generally, with capacity building of early career practitioners and researchers in the country-line departments and regional bodies and giving those people a career path in the region. At the moment, most of the projects are led and being managed and many of them being implemented by external consultants you know, who come into the region, do the work and leave and there's just not sufficient capacity building associated with that. And the other problem these groups have got is when they get someone who they train up you know, the major NGOs grab them and they go work for GIZ or WWF or someone like that. And also all of the, all of the South Pacific countries have tiny bureaucracies they have a handful of, full of people trying to do everything and all of this has to, be, has to be, you know, how do we integrate all of these new challenges like climate change into the business of government, into, these, into the mechanisms and institutions they have, because they just don't have the capacity to keep adding on another department or another division. So I've just got a few comments to finish, and because of all the activity that's happened around climate change, and it's been very quick, it's all happened in the last few years, handful of years, it's now become a dominant theme in the Pacific. It's a, it's a dominant source of overseas development money and, and aid money. It's a, it's a major priority for all the overseas development authorities and all the major NGOs working in the region. And a lot of people have been critical of it. You know, they think it's a furfier. A is an Australian colloquialism for a story that's not true. Uh, some people think it's just the latest fashion... Or it's like the Invisible Man, it sounds good, but when you look down, there's nothing there. Or the Emperor's New Clothing, you know. We're all saying climate change is really important, but when we look down, we can't actually see anything. So, but I think I've explained a lot of the reason for that. You know, uh, when when we start to drill down to the local level, you don't see climate change. You see all the problems that people are struggling with. You see food security issues and water security issues and development challenges in terms of Providing health and education and opportunities and things like this. And so climate change impacts get wrapped up in all of that. they interact with all of that. So it's very hard when you get down to, to, to you know, for the climate change signal to be really obvious there. And I think ecosystem-based adaptation is a, good, is a good example of that. People are saying, well, hang on, we already do ecosystem-based adaptation. It's called natural resource management, and we want to fund eco, we want to fund climate change adaptation. so we're not going to give you money. To keep, doing, to keep doing what you're doing. You're, you're already doing natural resource management. That's not climate change adaptation. You're just relabeling what you're doing. And I think the problem there is there's this, uh, there's this uh, proposition that if you're going to give someone money to do climate change adaptation and mitigation, it should be additional to what they're doing now. It should be something different that they wouldn't otherwise be doing. And then if you're giving them money for something they're already doing or would be doing anyway, it's kind of cheating or it's double-dipping... And I think that's just the wrong framing. I think what we need to talk about are co-benefits and we should be rewarding people for co-benefits and for positive synergies rather than punishing them. Uh, because as I said, when it comes down to looking at mitigation and adaptation, we don't want that happening in isolation from each other or from sustainable development more generally. So I do want to conclude on a positive note, if I may. Let me end on two points. One is negative and one is not so negative. So so the negative one is, the, the reality is that humans are going to be perturbing the climate for a long time. I mean, that's just, the science is pretty clear on it. Uh, so this is something we're going to have to learn to live with. It's not like, even if we do mitigate our emissions so that they stabilise, fossil fuel emissions that are in the atmosphere will keep interacting with the climate for hundreds of years. Actually, it's thousands of years. So a lot of scientists are now talking about the need... Well, uh, talking about climate disruption rather than climate change, and adaptation means living with the fact that the climate is just going to be permanently less reliable, and that we're going to have to deal with a the climatic regime we're going to have to deal with is just going to be a more disruptive one and a more costly one, and and we're going to have to be a lot more flexible, you know, in how we think about it. So that's kind of negative, I guess. Uh, it's it's but it's realistic, but. I get a little tired of, you know, um, and a lot of my uh, South Pacific colleagues, I should say, get get exasperated with the idea that the South Pacific is a basket case, you know, and that it needs fixing, and that it's just a sink for over, you know, for for overseas development aid. And you know, and can we turn that thinking around? You know, can we turn, you know, South Pacific being a a sink to a source, building upon its natural and cultural resources? So I'd like to think that. Maybe, all, you know, could. So I'm asking the question, and here's a challenge for us Can we take all this climate change money that's coming in and use it to, to uh, help change um, the kind of aspirations or the understanding we have for the Pacific? Can we use the climate change money to catalyse a kind of a new development model for the South Pacific? You know? Maybe it's one more like the aspiration we had for the Marshall Plan you know, in Europe, which was about not just dealing with the damage that the war had done but you know enabling Europe to kind of go go forward. Can it become a source region, you know, that builds upon its natural and cultural resources? One where we see the Pacific Ocean not as a problem or a quarry, you know as an opportunity. It certainly provides globally significant ecosystem services. It absorbs a lot of carbon and it grows a lot of fish and, you know, it supports a lot of people. So, you know, can we use the climate change money to help help Bring about a, you know, a new development model you know, that's showcased in the South Pacific. So that's my positive uh, query to finish on. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward podcasts.